Fantastic. Good morning again. Good morning to everyone who's listening online, or good evening, or good afternoon. There's loads of people listening online, which is really exciting as well. Um, this is just a fab passage, and if you're not excited already, I guarantee that you will be uh, as the rest of the service uh, continues. But um, before we get into the, the depths of the passage, so to speak, I just want to touch on something um, that is a recurring theme throughout Revelation. There's a number of those, and it just seemed like a good moment to touch on that this morning. Um, there are lots of numbers in the book of Revelation, and uh, some of them are literal, and some of them are symbolic, and some of them are kind of both at the same time. Uh, so I just wanted to touch on a few numbers. You would have been super impressed at the 915 because our hymn numbers went like this, 1551. I didn't even plan it. It was so exciting. <laughs> anyway, so the first number is this, the number three, which is the number of God, Father, Son, and Spirit, three in one. When we see the number three, or even holy, 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 we have that sense that this is about God. It's about God. Then there's number four. Four is about the world and humanity. So it's the four living creatures bow down, uh, flying around the throne. The number four represents humanity and, uh, and the world that we live in. Then there's the number seven, four plus three. The number seven, a number of fullness and completeness. But along with that is the number 12, which is four times three, which also has that same sense, the sense of completeness and fullness and wholeness. So the 12 tribes, the 12 disciples and so on, we have that sense of completeness there. With the number seven, of course, we've got the seven letters the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and then later on we'll have the seven bowls. This is all about that sense of completeness. Then, continuing from there, you have 144, which is 12 times. <coughs> Good. Kids now only have to learn up to 10 times. They're going to be missing out. 12 times 12. 144, full completeness, fully complete. The 144,000 is symbolic of a fully complete worshipping people under Christ. And then there's six. Now, if seven is complete, six is incomplete. And we'll hit the number six a fair few more times during the rest of Revelation. And then there's three and a half, which is half of seven, a short time, a little bit, That's a period of time. And then there's 40, which is a period of preparation or expectation. Have you got that? The number seven. <laughs> but the thing is that we don't need to get ourselves all tied up in knots, doing like A-level maths to try and work out all these things. These, the ones I've just mentioned, basically covers all of it pretty much. Those are the main things. It just gives us a sense that when we see those numbers recurring through the book of Revelation, it's like a code and we have a sense of what that code means, and it helps us to understand things. So, moving on. John says, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit. 
At once I was in the Spirit. Physically, John is still on the island of Patmos. But in the Spirit, he is seeing the throne room of God. And he uses that phrase, at once I was in the Spirit, or the Spirit took hold of me, just four times in the book of Revelation. Once in chapter 1, verse 10, when he's revealed the things that are going on on earth, the letters to the churches, what Jesus sees happening in those seven towns. Then here in chapter 4, verse 2, what he sees in heaven. And then not till much later on in chapter 17, when he begins to see visions regarding the cities of Babylon. And then in chapter 21, verse 10, and Jerusalem, he has that sense of being caught up in the Spirit again. And he sees an open door. An open door that's leading into a different world. The prophet is being taken behind the scenes in order to understand what's going on, what's going to take place, and how it all fits together. This is heaven at the moment. I want you to let that sink in for a moment. This is heaven at the moment. This is not what will be some distant day. This is heaven at the moment. If you go back to Matthew, I need you to scurry around in your Bibles or electronic devices, please, for me today. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 16. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him and a voice came from heaven. And then if you go back even further to Isaiah chapter 6. Verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Does that sound familiar? And then again, back in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 2, Jesus says these words. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. It's near. And we've talked about this, haven't we, before, that there's the heaven, which is the air you breathe, and there's the heaven where the birds fly around in the sky, and then there's the heaven beyond that. Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven, literally the kingship, the rule of heaven, is near. And John is told to come here. Oh my goodness me. If you thought that glancing from a distance through the cracked open doorway of heaven was more than you could imagine or ever grasp or take hold of, Jesus says to John, come over here. Come and stand right in the throne room of God. And John got to stand in God's council chamber. He heard and he saw and he felt and experienced what was and what is to come. And he brought that word back to encourage the church 
come here into the very throne room of God. In the New Testament, the word throne is used 62 times. 47 of them are in Revelation. Do you think there's a message there? The throne of God is the defining reality of all creation. Like the sun in our solar system, everything else revolves around it. Everything. Everything. It is the center of all authority. And in worship, God gathers people to himself as center. That's what we're doing. You know, I think that we have an ever-increasingly negative view of authority, don't we? An understandably negative view of authority, actually. Whether it's the sort of low-level authorities or the supreme high-level authorities, it doesn't really matter particularly. They deceive us. They disappoint us. We've got suspicious and distrusting of authority. Sometimes I think that we even put that onto God, don't we? Everyone else has let us down, or maybe he has too. Some of this book is to say that God is, God is still on his throne. He can be trusted. He won't deceive you. He won't disappoint you. He is faithful. So we have the question, don't we? Who's in charge? Trump? Can we all breathe? Putin? Or is Putin in charge of Trump? Is Trump in charge of Putin? Assad? Or are Trump and Putin in charge of Assad? Or is he in charge of them? And then there's Theresa May. Who's in charge? Makes your heart weep, doesn't it, when you see this list? <laughs> Who's in charge? Symbols of authority. God seeks to reassure his people and us that no matter what happens on this earth, the final seat of authority is in heaven. And I think that we maybe need to hold on to that a little bit more tightly. No matter what happens on earth, the final seat of authority is in heaven. You know, the early Russian communists said this, we will depose the kings from their thrones on earth, and then we will depose God from his throne in the sky. Where are the Russian communists? Turn back with me, will you, to Psalm 2. Because sometimes I think we need a little bit of this. A little bit of Psalm 2. <laughs> in the light of our news stories every day of every week. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. He laughs. He's not stressing. He's not writing a five-year strategy plan. He's laughing. 
The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. John saw, actually saw, God sitting on his throne. Can you imagine it? Anything more glorious? And of course, that word sitting describes the position of the king who is actively reigning. We talk about our politicians being seated when they are in office and unseated when they're thrown out of office. John sees God seated, meaning that he is exercising the duties of his executive office and administering over the affairs of creation now. Now. How do you describe the throne room of heaven? It's just kind of impossible, isn't it? Impossible to describe it. Describing it in terms of reflected brilliance, of precious stones, jasper and carnelian and sapphires and rubies and emeralds and diamond, just reflected colors and beauty and light and brilliance. Here on earth we see light filtered often through polluted air, don't we? Rarely do we see the true colors of things as they really are. That's why it's nice to go places where there's less pollution and the sea is more turquoise and the land is more green and the sky is more blue. And I don't think we have yet imagined the colors of God's creation as he made them. And there's a rainbow, isn't there, around the throne. And it's a parallel to Ezekiel's vision. If we go back to Ezekiel, I told you you'd need to rummage around a bit. Ezekiel chapter 1. And we can't read all of this, but... I want to read from verse 25. This is Ezekiel caught up by the Spirit to see things as they are. Then there came a voice from above the expanse over their heads and as they stood with lowered wings. Above the expanse over their heads was what looked like a throne of sapphire and high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal, as if full of fire, and that from there down he looked like fire and brilliant light surrounded him, like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day. So was the radiance around him. Listen to this. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell face. How do you describe the glory of God? How do you describe the throne room of God? you just using, it's like this and it's like that and it seems like, because you just can't describe it. And that rainbow that Ezekiel saw, John also saw, and it brings back to imagination the rainbow of Noah's time, the promise of hope and faithfulness. But you know what? On the coins... Of that time, the Roman emperor was on his throne and behind his throne was a rainbow. Because this is polemic too. Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. 
Caesar is temporarily on the throne, but God is eternally on his throne. And in front of the throne was a sea of glass. And we think of the Red Sea and God rescuing. And we think of the sea in the temple, a bowl of bronze where people came and they purified themselves as they came to worship. And in Roman homes, they had the pluvium where people washed their hands as they came into the home. We can't come to the throne of God without his cleansing and purifying in our hearts. And around the throne were the 24 elders, 12, yeah, remember that? 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles, that sense of completeness in their white robes, symbolizing purity and victory. And around the throne was thunder and lightning. This is a multi-sensory experience here. It's not two-dimensional. It's not even three-dimensional or four-dimensional. It's kind of bigger than that. And then there are these living creatures with wings and covered in eyes, front and back. I have no idea what this is like. And one of them looks like a lion, the king of the beasts, the noblest of all. And one of them looks like an ox, a working day-to-day animal, renowned for his strength. One of them like a human, the wisdom of humanity. And one of them is like an eagle, the swiftest and the noblest of birds, and they are all four of them. The world is worshipping the king upon his throne. And it's such a moving scene, isn't it? As they sing, and as they call out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. As they bring their glory and honor and thanks and praise. And as they take the crowns that they have been given, and they throw them at his feet. And if ever you aspire to having a crown for something that you have done for the glory of God, then only ever aspire to having it so that you may put it down and worship at his feet. Somebody said to me after the first service that our queen reputed to have said that she hopes that Jesus comes back while she is still alive so that she may throw her crown at his feet in worship. It's beautiful, isn't it? And they worship him. And all creation is intimately connected to their worship. And I want to read this to you. There's a lot in it. It's not long, but there's a lot in it. But it just seems so important to me when we talk about worship together. We worship so that we live in response to and from this center, the living God. Failure to worship consigns us to a life of spasms and jerks, at the mercy of every advertisement, every seduction, every siren. Without worship, we live manipulated and manipulating lives. We move in either frightened panic or deluded lethargy as we are in turn alarmed by spectres and soothed by placebos. If there is no center, there is no circumference. People who do not worship are swept into a vast restlessness, epidemic in the world, with no steady direction and no sustaining purpose. 
and you thought it was just about singing a few songs? No, Jesus speaks to the church in Pergamum, and uh, he says to them, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And within an instant, there's this amazing opening scene of the throne room of God. And as they talk about the throne rooms, there's a parallel sense in their minds of Caesar's throne room. And we have this ever struggle, power struggle between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of God. But the powers of this world are a parody, aren't they? A cheap imitation, copies of the one power who truly reigns. And John is given this amazing, amazing vision of an incomparable throne, an unrivaled throne, a glorious throne that sits above every other throne. In Asia Minor at that point was the deification of ownership, of economics, of sexuality, and power. Does that sound familiar? Are they not the same things that we make into our gods and worship? Those things are in competition with God. Jeremiah says to the people in his time, you've abandoned the springs of living water and instead you're drinking from broken cisterns. Stagnant, stale, dirty water. When you could have the living water of life, John's message is the same. You're bowing down before all these gods and kings. And the only one worthy of your worship is the king of kings. So here's some interesting questions for you to think about. Who is the rival for your worship? Who demands your allegiance? Who is at the center? If you want to know the answer to that question without being silly and unrealistic, look at where you spend your time and your money and what you think about most. That will help you to answer the question. The Lord is king. He is the only one worthy of our worship. He needs to be at the center. And then everything else takes its right place. So what reality is revealed? What reality is revealed? Around us, below us, beside us, behind us, and in front of us. This song fills reality. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord who was and who is and who is to come. When we praise and when we worship, we add our voices to that beautiful moment in heaven. When we praise and when we worship, we are there. There is nothing ordinary about a church Worship service. There should be nothing boring about worshipping God. It's the very reason that we've been created. We're going to be doing it for all eternity. 
I wonder if we see that. You know, just sometimes you get a glimpse, don't you, that this is not all there is. That we are doing something in conjunction with other people across the globe of every tribe and tongue and nation. And that we are joining with the angels. I've sometimes sat in that corner with my flute, which is my happy place. I could do that for all eternity. And I think there's something more. I can hear the angels singing. You know, we join with something that is more than what we are. And we might sing out a tune and we might sing the wrong words and we might not even like the song. <laughs> but if we're focused on God, we join with the worship of heaven. What a greater opportunity could we ever have than that? I've told this story before, but I want to tell it again. <laughs> Some years ago, 1989, in Czechoslovakia as it was then, the Velvet Revolution took place. And a key figure in that was a guy called Václav Havel. He became the prime minister, but he was really a poet and a playwright. And it was called the Velvet Revolution because no blood was shed. It was a subversive revolution. It came from the people. And things just changed. And he said this, and, and it lives with me, this quote. We had our parallel society and in that parallel society, we wrote our plays and sung our songs and read our poems until we knew the truth so well that we could go out onto the streets of Prague and say, we don't believe your lies anymore, and communism had to fall. That's so powerful. It's so powerful. In a nation that had been saturated by communist thinking, brainwashed, if you like, some people started to grow up who knew that there could be a different way, a different reality, who wrote poems and stories and songs. And they started to believe that they were true. And in the face of truth, the lies of communism had to fall. It reminds me of worship. It reminds me of what we do when we sing our songs and we proclaim our truths. Exiles in the biblical times were formed by the stories, by the stories of the Exodus, stories of God at work in his people, telling a different story from the surrounding culture. How can we sing the songs of the Lord in a strange land? We sing a different song, a parallel, truer reality. Worship is lots of things. It's singing and it's praying and it's giving our offerings and it's laying down our lives and all that. But one key thing that it is, is shaping ourselves by a different and truer reality. We are not just singing songs, but proclaiming truth. Let me tell you about something that happened um, a couple of months ago. Uh, as many of you know, um, Mike took me to New York for my birthday as a, as a treat. And uh, around that time, it's the beginning of December, um, I started having some really bad migraines, and, I, and I've had them on and off through my life, but I haven't had them so much recently. And uh, so it was a bit of a kind of shock, and they were really, really bad. Um, tended to wake up in the middle of the night or early in the morning, and if you've never had a migraine, thank God. And um, 
it's hard to describe that all-encompassing sense of pain and whole body ugh-ness and feeling sick and just wanting to curl up like a wounded animal and preferably die. That would be preferable at that point. <laughs> uh, so not nice. Don't aim for one. So I started having a number of these. Um, when we went to New York, we needed to drive from our house to Manchester, plane from Manchester to Heathrow, and then Heathrow to JFK. We got up at 3.30 in the morning. I woke up, my whole body completely subsumed under this migraine. Just hard to describe how awful I felt, really. Um, and I just thought, I can't do this. I can't. <laughs> so I got up, got dressed, <laughs> Uh, still going, I, I can't do this, with another voice in my head going, but, but can't isn't an option at this particular point. <laughs> Normally can't is an option, but on this occasion can't was not an option. And I stood in the bathroom just thinking, I, I just, I can't even walk down the stairs, I don't know how I'm going to get in a car and do two flights, I, I just don't know. And we've sung a song occasionally, more recently, but occasionally, and I've never ever been able to remember the words for the song, and I'm quite good at remembering song words. And as I stood in the bathroom, the first line of this song just came into my mind. And it says this, God, I look to you, I won't be overwhelmed. That was it. I couldn't remember any more of it. And I just, I just said it. And I said it. And I said it. And I said it. And I said it all the way as I walked to the car. And I got in the car. And by the time we got to Rottenstall, I could actually look at a map and speak. Now, if you know what having a migraine is like, that's, that's not normal. And I was a bit fragile, but we got all the way to JFK. We got on the train. We got to our hotel. We dumped our bags and we went out for the evening. God, I look to you. I won't be overwhelmed. It doesn't always happen like that. But it did in that moment. It was truth. Truth. And this is the backdrop for our lives, isn't it? This scene... This heavenly perspective of what is and what is to come. And Rachel, thanks for inviting people to use their imagination. And Matt, that's so helpful because we need to do that. We need to fill our imagination. We need to capture our hearts with awe of the person and the presence of God where we are. And some of us are really good at that. And some of us are rubbish So read this chapter of Revelation. Read the first three chapters of Ezekiel. Read Daniel chapter 7. Let that song be sung. Let your imagination be filled with this reality. Let this be the opening scene for the everyday of your life. This opening scene be your opening scene. What if you woke up and allowed this heavenly scene to be the opening scene of your day? What would be different? What would be different? What if before you stepped off the bus or out of the car at work, this scene was the opening scene? What would be different? What if before you closed your eyes and bowed your head... This scene was the opening scene for your prayer time. What would be different? 
This is the challenging one. What if before you spoke to your spouse or your children or your friend, this scene was the opening scene of your conversation? What if before you made that choice at the point of temptation, this scene was the opening scene of your inner deliberations? What would be different? What if before the tidal wave of obligations, what if before your computer booted up, what if before you wrote that check, what if before your meal or your holiday or your ambitions or your conversations with a colleague, what if this scene was the opening scene, the backdrop? What would be different? What would be different? Now we need to gain a true sense of awe, don't we? In the authority of our God. In his power and presence. I came into work on Thursday morning and uh, walked into Mick's office to say hello. And Mick said to me, I think I've got us in a spot of bother So I said to Mick, why, what have you done? I didn't say this time, by the way. (laughs) And uh, he told us a great story. He said, well, I was sitting outside being loved on Wednesday afternoon. Being loved is Mick's parish, by the way. And uh, a number of people had spoken to him during that time. And the lady who's the manager of the Age UK charity shop came across Mick's chatted to her before about some quite important things. She came across and she went, you're just the person that I need. It's always a bit frightening when people say things like that. And uh, then she said, um, Can we, have a, we had a bit of an incident in the shop, I think it was last week. She said someone was near the door in the shop and, um, and a book flew past their heads, jumped off the shelf and uh, landed on the floor. And this person was completely freaked out and they went, you've got a poltergeist in your shop. They were, they were properly frightened uh, because everything about the scenario didn't make this a logical thing to have occurred. They were really frightened. And increasingly the volunteers in the shop over the pre- previous few days had become m- more frightened as well and... Um, and uh, some of them were saying, I don't, I don't want to work in here. I don't want to volunteer when it's dark. I don't want to be on my own. So this lady had the presence of mind to think that maybe Mick, Mick representing the church, Mick representing Jesus, might be the answer. Which is great, isn't it? So I said to Mick, oh, okay, well, so they wanted something to be done. <laughs> so, so I said to Mick, you're not going on your own. I'm coming with you. <laughs> and then we got a few pe- people to pray as well because that's a good thing to do. And we sorted ourselves out and we got straightened up. And we prayed. And, um, and then we went down there. She was there. The area manager was there and a volunteer. And uh, we went up to the attic. So it start at the top. Didn't even know there was an attic. Um, we said, where's the book? The book was about this big, 
a big hardback children's book. It was Enid Blyton. I don't think there's anything particularly evil about that. <laughs> and we prayed and we said, this is, this is what we're going to pray. Jesus is Lord over this place. Jesus is Lord. No power of darkness can be in this place. We're going to pray peace on here. Is that okay? Because we needed to know it was okay. They went, that's, that's fine. They had quite a good understanding of what might have been going on, actually. And we said, well, do you want to be here or do you want to go somewhere else? And they, oh, no, we're fine. So they hung around whilst we prayed. We prayed on the next floor and we prayed on the ground floor. We looked at where the book had come from and there was no way that a book had accidentally fallen off a shelf. We anointed that place with oil symbolizing the presence and the power and the authority of Jesus Christ. And if we didn't have that opening scene as the backdrop for our lives, we'd have gone, oh, I don't think we can do that. But Jesus is Lord. And there is no inch of this creation over which he does not say, it is mine. It is mine. We need that sense of awe, don't we? It humbles us. It corrects us. It encourages us. It guides us. It makes us confident when we don't feel like it, do we, Mick? <laughs> it sets the tone for what is to come. And so often our opening scenes are written by our own pride, our fears, our doubts, our anxieties, our lust, or something else. So we need to cry out to God, don't we, this morning? Again, we need to ask him that because of Jesus, will he give us new eyes? Do you ever feel like you're blind? That you have spiritual cataracts on, you can't see it. Ask him to make you see See that vision. Let's ask his spirit to come jumpstart those words inside of us. To set them on fire so that we might know something of what John did when he walked through that open door in heaven. I'm going to ask Matt to come and continue to lead us in worship. Let's let these truths fill our hearts and our souls and our minds and our 